This week on The Pros and Cons, murderish Southern California, we'll take you inside a horrifying local murder with one of the pros on the case. I'm Bethany from The Pros and Cons, and joining us today in studio is Jamie from Murderish. We recently met Jamie, and we didn't just have a shared love of true crime, but a shared love of Southern California. And so we've teamed up with her to do a few crossover episodes. The Pros and Cons presents Murderish Southern California. That's right. We'll not only take you deep inside some of the cases that rocked our communities, We'll also go and visit some of these locations. Can you say road trip? I can't wait. I do love my hot Cheetos on road trips, just so you know. I love, um, what are those, the Takis? Oh, yes. Same same difference. So, yeah, I'm oh. down. <laughs> um, so the pros and cons, as you all know, is available on most of the popular podcast platforms, such as TuneIn, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and others. And Murderish is also available on all of the most popular podcast platforms that Bethany mentioned above. And our crossover episodes will be available on both The Pros and Cons and Murderish. And we love it when you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really, truly helps other true crime fans find us. And if you're feeling particularly social, you can find The Pros and Cons on Facebook and Instagram at The Pros and Cons Podcast where you and your fellow true crimies can hang out with us and on Twitter at the pros and cons show. You can find murderish on Twitter at murderish pod. You can find the show on Facebook by searching murderish discussion group, and you can find us on Instagram at murderish podcast. We follow each other. We tag each other in, in different posts. So if you can't find us one way, shoot one of us a message and we'll be glad to connect you as well. And I'm so excited because Jamie, you actually have a deep personal connection to our case. And I'd love if you could just start by telling us a little bit about it. Absolutely. Um, this is a case in which I was a juror. I was the jury foreman. And this happened uh, last year, 2017, uh, summertime. And it was a heinous murder uh, that happened in my hometown in the Santa Clarita Valley. And uh, I'm going to walk you through those details on this episode. Well, thank you for uh, not only being part of this episode, but uh, being part of this uh, series. I'm very excited. Me too. So um, the story begins with a newly married couple, Robert and Courtney Arvizu. Robert and Courtney had set up life in an apartment in Newhall. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Southern California geography, Newhall is part of what is known as the Santa Clarita Valley. Um, and Santa Clarita is slightly north of uh, Los Angeles. It is still, in fact, part of Los Angeles County. 
and it's about 25 minutes north of where we're recording today. Um, Santa Clarita is known as a safe family town. It's got good schools. Uh, it's a large valley, but the kind where people are connected to each other in one way or another. It's kind of everyone knows the neighbors. And um, some of you may recognize the name Santa Clarita from the popular Netflix series, Santa Clarita Diet. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I've lived in the Santa Clarita Valley for about seven years now, uh, just a few miles away from the scene of the crime that we're going to discuss today. Oh, interesting. And funnily enough, um, my connection to Santa Clarita is I used to volunteer at an equine therapy center in Santa Clarita. So I worked with um, children with uh, learning disabilities and uh, even physical disabilities. And so Every Saturday, I'd get up early and, and head north to Santa Clarita. Rob and Courtney met in January of 2015. Two months after meeting each other, they married. And just two months after their marriage, Courtney was dead. So truly a whirlwind. Um, at the time that Courtney and Rob met, Courtney was living in an apartment with her mother in Newhall and also her dog. Rob was 49 years old at the time, and he lived in an apartment um, right opposite, right across the street from Courtney and her mother. And Courtney was really pretty. I've actually seen her Facebook page and just extremely attractive, a petite brunette. Um, she did have some tattoos on her arms and chest. They were pretty visible. And we'll talk about that because the tattoos, especially the one on her chest... Um, we'll talk about that. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. And Courtney was 25 years old. So with Rob at 49, she was almost half Rob's age. Is that what they call a May-December romance or? Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're not exactly sure the very moment that Rob and Courtney met and began, but they did begin dating and they began dating pretty heavily in January of 2015. And just two months into their courtship, Courtney and Rob uh, went on a trip to Vegas. It was a business trip to go to a graphic design convention. And at this convention, they decided to get married while in Vegas. And they got married March 27th, 2015. That's right. And actually, I've talked to some people since uh, this all happened, and I okay. believe they met each other in the gym. They were both kind of gym rats, okay. Rob and Courtney were. And I think that that's where they met. In the gym at one of their apartment complexes or an actual... LA Fitness LA in Fit Santa Clarita. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. They were kind of like what's known as, I think, the, the morning crew. They would show up really early and okay. it would be all kind of the same people working out together. And I've I've uh, become friends with somebody who was kind of in that crew okay. as well. And I think that's where they met. Oh, interesting. Right. So on their wedding night, Rob and Courtney went out to a bar in the evening and ran into an old bandmate of Rob's. Rob used to play in a sort of a rock band. Okay. And uh, Courtney and Rob ended up getting into a really bad altercation that evening in their hotel room because Rob accused Courtney of flirting with his friend at the bar. The altercation got so loud uh, that some hotel guests called security. Security, when they got there, they noticed marks on Courtney's face and neck so they ended up calling Las Vegas Metro Police. Oh, wow. Right. Later, the police officer testified in court and confirmed Courtney's injuries. Uh, she had injuries to her face, her neck, and her eyes. She had what's called petechia in her eyes, which are basically little um, 
broken blood vessels and they mm -hmm. show up as little brown spots. And that often occurs when somebody's been choked. That's violent. Very violent. And on their wedding night, I mean. Can you imagine? Huge red flags. They only knew each other just a couple of months and they had just gotten married that night and he was choking her. And, you know, I would like to say I my parents got married very quickly. They met in October, got engaged in December and married in June. But this is back in the 70s. My dad was moving back to the States and they were in love and they wanted to have a solid, you know, marriage and relationship mm -hmm. and to, you know, hold on to one another. So, you know, I'm not trying we're not trying to shame people who get married quickly. Not at all. This this obviously w what puts them outside of the realm of you know, quote unquote, no normalcy is really just the abuse yeah. right, on their wedding night. I don't think that that happens often, I no. would imagine. Um, did they remain together after this incident? They did remain together and they ended up driving back in the same vehicle um, to back to Santa Clarita. Um, but you'll see later on uh, in this story that Rob actually ended up being pretty resentful of Courtney over this incident, which sounds crazy because obviously she should be resentful of him. Right. But he would perceive later on that she was, uh, quote unquote, holding charges over his head. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So two months after the Vegas incident, on the evening of May 23rd, 2015, Rob and Courtney went to a house party in Northridge to celebrate Rob's best friend Eric's birthday. Eric said at trial that he and Rob had been friends for 10 years and that they were like brothers. Rob and Eric actually met through Eric's wife, Maylin, who had been very close friends with Rob for almost 20 years. Rob and Eric became friends through Rob's prior friendship with Maylin. They were so close that Rob was actually the godfather to Eric and Maylin's children. So can you imagine being in court when they testified against him, that dynamic? Oh my gosh. I mean, just soul crushing for, you know, Eric and Maylin and just devastating for Rob because here are people he thought were in his corner that are revealing the truth of who he is. Right. I mean, and it was, you could feel the tension in the air. And actually this is one of the only two moments where Rob actually started crying. The defendant started crying because Maylin was sobbing because her best friend and the godfather of her children for 20 years, she's testifying against him now. Yeah. And she was looking at him when she would testify and saying all kinds of things and it made him cry. And oh, that was only one of the two wow. moments. Yeah. Wow. Powerful. Right. Eric's birthday party was being held at a friend's house in Northridge, which is about a 20 minute drive from Rob and Courtney's apartment in Newhall. People who were at the party said Rob and Courtney showed up happy. There's actually a picture that was shown at trial of Rob and Courtney with their arms around each other, each of them holding a beer and they were smiling. At some point during the party, Rob began to act erratically. According to witness testimony at trial, People at the party said his mood just changed and he became very angry with Courtney. It could have been something as small as Courtney talking to another party guest for too long. It really wasn't hard to piss Rob off. And he was an insanely jealous and possessive guy. Okay. He was also very resentful of Courtney, like I mentioned earlier. And he would tell her things like, you know, quote, you're holding charges over my head. You're holding charges over my head. He would yell at her. Um, and in fact, at the party that night, he told his best friend, Eric, that, you know, that bitch is holding charges over my head. He was very angry with Courtney over the Vegas incident. Right. Okay. Which, I mean, that's just very twisted logic. Absolutely. He was, you'll see that he's not a logical person. And um, I would argue just very selfish, you know, how dare yeah. him be resentful of her. 
So a guy who attended the party testified that Rob jumped on a guy's back and bit him on the cheek, which was enough to cause an injury that required an ice pack. Rob didn't know this guy, so Rob's behavior was just all over the place that night. And I mean, how uncomfortable for Eric and Maylin. It's their birthday party celebration, and here is their best friend who's biting guests and behaving really peculiarly. Very poorly. I mean, it... it, it it escalated so quickly and he was just all over the place like I just described. And can you just imagine what people were thinking? Right. And I mean, it even later on in the evening when Rob was still, Rob and Courtney were still at the party, Rob became very angry and enraged and began calling Courtney a whore. And Malin, Eric's wife and Rob's good friend of many years, testified at trial that she actually got in between Rob and Courtney because the argument became so heated. And Malin told Rob, you know, you need to calm down. You're embarrassing yourself, which, I mean, that's, for some men, if you say you're embarrassing yourself, that's it. Mm -hmm. So Rob continued yelling at Courtney, calling her a whore. And, you know, Courtney, to her credit, isn't just sitting there taking it. She's yelling right back at Rob, and she was quoted as saying, fuck you, Rob, and having a feisty demeanor. Malin starts telling Courtney, you need to stop this. You need to be quiet. You know, shut up. Try to defuse the situation instead of having this angry back and forth in the middle of, you know, her husband's uh, birthday party. So Eric decides to also intervene and to, you know, interject himself. He takes Rob to another room to talk to him privately. And Rob confides in Eric that Courtney is cheating on him and she's having sex with other guys at work. And he says to Eric again in this, you know, intimate conversation that Courtney's holding charges over my head, referring back to the Vegas incident at, you know, their wedding night two months ago. You know, Eric can see how emotional and worked up Rob is and convinces Rob to go outside. Um, they go out through the front door and Eric says, come on, Rob, let's leave the party. And they get into Eric's car and leave, you know, maybe take a few minutes to cool off and to kind of leave the situation a little bit. Um, and Rob leaves with Courtney's cell phone and car keys in his pocket. So she's stuck at the party with people she hardly knows, you know, she hasn't even known Rob that long. So what kind of relationship can she have with his close friends even? Not one that's that deep. She barely knew anybody at the party. If like, she mostly didn't know anybody, she only knew just a couple of people, but not well. And I mean, quite frankly, for me, there's nothing more awkward than being stuck at a party where you hardly know anyone. Now your husband's verbally assaulted you in front of everyone and he's left with your car keys and cell phones. So you can't even reach out to anyone to come get you. So that's got to be a very lonely, isolating feeling. Um, Eric and Rob, however, leave the party in Eric's car. And Rob at first is pretty calm. He seems to kind of have gotten over the hill and the hump of this rage and during this drive, Rob's mood changes again. He seems super mercurial and he becomes angry with Eric and says, fuck you, Eric, you're taking Courtney's side. And I just like, I have to go 
and say this has to be a nightmare birthday for Eric, you know? It was, and it's going to get worse. Oh, God. Um, so they're on the freeway. Which freeway were they on, by the way? They were on the 405 freeway, which everybody who lives in L.A. or even if you don't is pretty familiar with the 405 freeway. It's, it's a major, major freeway. So were they headed south? They were headed north back towards Santa Clarita. Okay. Toward Robin Courtney's apartment. Okay. Um, so they're on the freeway on the 405, headed back to Rob's apartment in Newhall. And Rob just starts beating Eric up in the car, punching him on the side of the face and choking him. And that's hugely dangerous because you're barreling, you know, going the speed of traffic, which could be 60, 65 or upwards of that. And mm -hmm. someone's choking you. You could swerve and hit someone. You could hit the guardrail. You could. I mean, that's hugely dangerous. So Eric pulls over on the side of the 405 freeway, tells Rob to calm down or he's going to kick him out of the car, leave him on the side of the freeway. And Rob takes a deep breath. He calms down and apologizes. So Eric and Rob continue driving to get to Newhall, but Rob gets angry again and starts beating Eric up again while they're driving. So Eric pulls over on the side of the road and puts Rob in some sort of chokehold. Uh, interestingly enough, Eric has, uh, it came out in trial that Eric had some MMA fighting experience. Okay. So I would imagine he was a good match for Rob and Rob was a big guy. Okay. Um, so now you've got these two fighting, um, Eric standing up for himself. He's got the car pulled over. So Eric tells Rob to get out of the car. Rob does and falls to his knees and tells Eric that he's sorry. And Eric ends up leaving Rob uh, on the side of the road. He had had enough of his BS and yeah. he left him on the side of the road in Newhall, not too far from his apartment. So it's not like he's totally stranded. No. I mean, it was nighttime, but it's like, look, I'm sorry, but if you're going to beat me up in my car, I'm going to leave your ass here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think I would have done the same thing. Right. Good to note for our road trip. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. If you assault me, I'm going to have to leave you behind, honey. <laughs> so Eric begins driving back to Northridge where the birthday party was going on. But before Eric gets back to the party, he decides to stop at one of his neighbor's houses to clean up. I mean, remember, he's been beat up by Rob and uh, his face is bleeding pretty bad. Oh, gosh. While at the neighbor's house, they take pictures of Eric's face. And at trial, those pictures were shown and it did look like his nose was broken. Eric had a swollen eye and red marks on his neck. So it was clear he took a pretty bad beating from okay. Rob. So after being at the neighbor's house for a while, Eric gets back in his car and heads back to the party. Maylin is shocked to see his injured face when he gets there. Can you imagine? I mean, that's got to be so discombobulating for her. Absolutely. I mean, she had already been through so much seeing, you know, what uh, her friend, his anger at the party, and then now her husband comes home with a totally bloody face and broken nose. Oh, my gosh. So Eric tells Maylin about the fight in the car with Rob. Maylin tells Eric that Courtney left the party on foot, but nobody saw her leave. So after Rob and Eric left the party, Maylin told Courtney she didn't think it was a good idea for Courtney to go home that night. The situation was just too heated. Maylin offered for Courtney to stay at her house that night. When Courtney declined, Maylin then offered to give Courtney a ride to a friend's house. Courtney said she was fine and didn't need a ride. And at some point after that, she left the party. But like I said, nobody saw her leave and they didn't know where she went. When Eric left the party with Rob, it was around 7 p.m. He got back to the party around 8 or 8.30 p.m. So Courtney had actually stayed at this party where she didn't know anyone for a little while after her husband Rob had left with Eric. Um, and when she decided it was time for her to go, she left on foot. 
keeping in mind she doesn't have her car keys and she doesn't have her cell phone. But no one at the party had seen her leave or in what direction she was headed. And so at the same time, Rob is walking along the side of the road in Newhall, not far from his and Courtney's apartment where Eric had left him. And it was around 7.30, a friend of Courtney's, Nico, was <clears throat> driving around Newhall with his girlfriend, and he sees Rob walking along the side of the road. And, you know, being a friendly, polite, generous guy, he pulls over and asks Rob if he needs a ride. Rob gets into the back seat of Nico's car, and uh, they begin heading towards Rob's apartment. Nico would uh, later testify at trial about this really peculiar and uncomfortable conversation uh, they had in his car as he was taking Rob home. Uh, after Rob got into the car, Rob proceeded to tell Nico that he and Courtney had gotten into this, you know, very heated argument and that he had actually gotten into a fight with a guy that Courtney was flirting with, maybe the guy he bit, I guess. So. I think that what he was trying to say, he was lying to Nico. Um, he So Rob did get into a fight. I think he was referring to the fight he got into with his friend Eric in the car. Okay. Um, but I think he made up the part just to make himself look better, like to give himself an excuse to fight Eric. So right. he threw in the part that Courtney was flirting with Eric, but that's not the case. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So Rob continues to tell Nico that he's going to go to Mabel's bar and do some heroin, which that's a bold statement to make to someone that right. you're off to a dive bar to do heroin. A little out of left field, but okay. Yep. And so Mabel's is a dive bar in Santa Clarita, not too far from Rob and Courtney's apartment. And Bethany, I've been to Mabel's a few times, okay. uh, as much as I don't want to admit it. Um, it's a total dive bar. Um, it's always really dark inside when you walk in. Um, when you look to the left, there's a jukebox. When you look straight ahead, there's a long bar. Um, and uh, there's a stage off to the right, you know, if they have a band or something like that. And there's a place for people to dance. Um, but it really is the type of bar that it seems like, you know, every third time you go there, there's a, some sort of fight that breaks out. Oh, my gosh. It's known in the area for just kind of bad things happening inside the bar. Yeah. Um, so I have not been to the bar in quite some time. But, uh, yeah, very, very divey place. Oh, my goodness. So Rob has never met Nico's girlfriend before. And he begins to lay into her and saying things like, you need to treat Nico good or I'll kill you. And this is even more odd because Rob hardly knows Nico and Nico is really Courtney's friend and he's never met Nico's girlfriend at all. So it's really extreme behavior. So at this point, Nico is so uncomfortable that he just wants Rob out of the car and this conversation is making him and his girlfriend nervous. So Nico drops Rob off at his apartment around 7.45 and drives off. After that, Nico gets a phone call from Rob asking him if he'll go hang out with him at Mabel's bar. And Nico politely declines. So while all that's going on is when Eric's back home, you know, cleaning up his face. Mm -hmm. He's okay. home. He's back at where the party occurred. Courtney's gone. They don't know where she went. And now Rob at this point is back at his own apartment in Newhall. Okay. So at the same time that Eric's headed back to the party, 
in his car. Courtney is somewhere in the San Fernando Valley with no keys, no cell phone, and Rob is home at their apartment wanting to find out where Courtney is. Around 8 p.m., Rob calls Courtney's mom, Dawn, and tells her about the argument and asks if she's heard from Courtney. How would she have heard from her? Because he's got her cell phone. Right. So, you know, maybe she stopped somewhere, you know, at a restaurant and maybe he figured she called her mom. But yeah, she has no cell phone to call anybody. No keys. No keys. She can't call an Uber. She can't call a Lyft. Right, right. So Dawn, Courtney's mom, who was actually the very first witness called at trial, tells Rob that she hasn't heard from Courtney. And now, of course, she's worried because her daughter's alone somewhere in the San Fernando Valley with no phone. And it's nighttime. Oh, my gosh. Dawn decides to get in her car and drive to the valley to find Courtney. She ends up going into a Chipotle restaurant and Dawn testified at trial that Courtney always loved Chipotle. And so she just kind of saw Chipotle and figured, let me walk in here and see if this is where Courtney went. Um, But of course, nobody had seen Courtney at the Chipotle. So Dawn did some more searching around the valley. She could not find her daughter. So she eventually drives back to her apartment. So there's a couple more calls exchanged between Don and Rob. During one call, Rob tells Don that Courtney's a whore. Oh, no. And that just really gives you an idea of Rob's mindset at the time. I mean, he was still so angry and he calls his new mother-in-law and tells her that her daughter's a whore. I mean, that's a very, very bold statement to make, obviously yeah. very disrespectful. Um, but Rob's an irrational person and saying something like that to his mother-in-law is just an example of that. Yeah, and I think we've seen that peppered throughout this story so far. Absolutely. So during one of the calls with Don, Rob actually finds Courtney walking in the San Fernando Valley, and this is around 9 p.m. Don testified that she heard Rob say, quote, get in the car, Courtney, but Courtney wouldn't get in the car. Courtney was very angry with Rob at this time. Rob ends up hanging up the phone, and Don is not able to reach Rob again that night. So, of course, Dawn is still very worried about Courtney, but she has no way of reaching her or Rob, and Rob won't answer Dawn's calls anymore after this point. Okay. So around 9 p.m., Dawn is home, worried about her daughter, Courtney. Courtney's on foot somewhere in the San Fernando Valley. Rob is driving back toward their home in Newhall and won't answer Dawn's calls anymore. So around 9.40 that evening, Rob and Courtney's landlord and the landlord's girlfriend get a knock at their door, and it was Courtney asking to be let into the apartment she lived in with Rob because she doesn't have her keys. Obviously, they were still with Rob. And the landlord, um, you know, would say that Courtney had been crying. There was mascara running down her face. She was visibly upset. And unfortunately, due to laws and leasing protocol, um, the landlord ends up telling Courtney that he will need to get permission from Rob because the apartment is only in Rob's name. Um, And Rob had leased this apartment before he knew Courtney. And after they had met and began courting and dating, Courtney moved in pretty quickly but they hadn't thought to add her name to the lease because their relationship had moved so fast. And so 9.44, the landlord gives Rob a call and says that Courtney wants to be let into the apartment. Rob says, go ahead and let her in. I'm going to be right there. The landlord's girlfriend gets the master key and begins walking Courtney to her apartment. Courtney is crying and telling her about this argument that she'd had with Rob. Meanwhile, the landlord ended up calling Rob back around 9.50 while his girlfriend and Courtney were headed over to the apartment. 
And the landlord has the, you know, good sense to tell Rob, it's probably not a good idea to come home. And, you know, advises him to stay with a friend or to stay somewhere else for the night. So you've had Malin offer Courtney a place to stay. You're having the landlord tell him this. You know, you're kind of like, is someone going to take the suggestion now? Right, because, I mean, this just tells you people had a very good sense that this was not just a corals uh, a Lovers. couple spat yeah, yeah it's not it was not just your normal average everyday spat this was dangerous and people sensed it and that's why they're warning them don't stay together tonight but and rob says everything's fine i'm on my way there now the landlord's girlfriend unlocks the apartment she and courtney walk inside courtney says i just want to gather my things get my dog and go to my mom's house for the night So it seems like Courtney is going to take this advice and seek refuge at her parents' place. And look, I've had moments where I've been like, I'm leaving this situation. I'm going right back to my parents' house and I'm just not going to engage with this poor behavior anymore. It's a very relatable situation for, you know, men and women, I can imagine. Because you get to a point where you're like, I'm just done. I don't want to be around you. you And, um, And, And I'm not even saying that my experience had... Violence. I just didn't want to be around this bad behavior anymore. So so the landlord's girlfriend can see how upset Courtney is and offers to walk walk Courtney over to her mom's apartment. And Courtney says, you know what, I'll be fine. And the landlord's girlfriend leaves. So um, the landlord's son also lived in the complex. So the landlord and his girlfriend live in one place or in one apartment And the landlord's son also lives there. And he testifies at trial that around 10 p.m. he hears a car come screeching into the apartment complex. Um, And this is just minutes after Courtney has been let in. So the, you know, this young man, the landlord's son, decides to step outside and see who's, you know, screeching in the parking lot. I mean, it's kind of dangerous. There might be kids playing or people backing out, you know. You can't come in tearing out like a bat out of hell. Right. The landlord's son pulls up to Rob and Courtney's apartment to find Rob getting out of his truck. And he asks Rob, you know, what's going on? Why are you coming into the apartment complex screeching like that? Right. And at that time, Rob tells uh, the landlord's son that everything's fine. And right then, Courtney comes walking out of their apartment with her dog in hand and yells at Rob, quote, give me my fucking keys, Rob. She must have heard him pull up. So at that point, the landlord's son sees that they're having a domestic dispute and he decides to leave kind of, you know, he said at trial, really, it was just none of my business and it was kind of awkward. So the landlord's son just pulls away at that point and leaves. Well, sure. I mean, who wants to sit there and try and, you know, play referee in that situation. Right. And he never could have known what was going to happen next, you know. I don't think anyone could. No, not at all. So at that point, after the landlord's son leaves, Rob and Courtney go into their apartment just a few minutes after 10 p.m. A lady named Maria, who lived in the apartment directly below Rob and Courtney's, testified at trial that she was in her living room and heard a loud thump from the apartment above hers sometime between 10 and 10.30 p.m. She only heard one thump. Ooh. Maria's apartment had the exact same layout as Rob and Courtney's. She was in her living room at the time she heard the thump directly above her, assuming something had hit the floor in the living room of the apartment right above hers. Mm -hmm. 
A doorman from Mabel's Bar testified that Rob showed up to the bar around 11 or 11.30 p.m. and tried to get in. But the doorman refused to let him in because he was, quote, stumbling and Rob just appeared to be too drunk to come in. So he refused to let him in. When you're denied entry to a dive bar, it's time to call it a night. I, I, I would imagine. So the doorman testified that Rob got into his truck and just drove away at that point. Courtney's mom, Dawn, was still worried about her daughter because she hadn't heard from her or Rob since he stopped answering her calls earlier in the evening. A little before midnight, Dawn decides to call the Santa Clarita Sheriff's Station and asks if they could go to her daughter's apartment to check on her. So a sheriff actually shows up at Rob and Courtney's apartment around midnight and knocks on the door. Rob answered the door, but only slightly. The sheriff said the apartment was completely dark and he could only see Rob's face. Oh, that's eerie. It was eerie. He he really just cracked the door open um, and you'd later find out, you know, he's hiding something. But, you know, he just cracked the door and it was completely dark. So the sheriff could really only see a small portion of Rob's face at this point. Okay. So the sheriff tells Rob uh, that Courtney's mom had called and requested a welfare check uh, and they came to check on Courtney. Rob says that Courtney's fine and that she's sleeping. The sheriff tells Rob that Courtney's mom is very worried and tells Rob he needs to go get Courtney and asks him to go wake her up because they need to talk to her. So at this point, Rob closes the door, doesn't ever come back. The sheriff knocks on the door again, but Rob doesn't answer. At this point, the sheriff ended up getting a priority call and he had to leave the apartment. Around 1.30 in the morning, Dawn, Courtney's mother, is beside herself and calls the sheriff's station again and says she still hasn't heard from her daughter and asks them to check on her again. This time, two different sheriffs show up at the apartment and knock on the door. Nobody answers, and so they knock again, louder and harder. And this causes the door to open slightly. The door would not open all the way because there was a hotel lock on it. So for those of you who don't know what that is, um, in hotel rooms, when you get into your suite, you can close the door and there's a little like bar or lock on the inside so that way, you know, people from the outside can't get in even if they have a master key. Yeah, and if you if you have the regular lock unlocked but you have the hotel lock on, somebody from the outside will be able to open your door but it's going to stop about three to four inches in and then right. your door will only be kind of cracked open at that point. So the door wouldn't open all the way because of this hotel lock on it that was preventing it from opening further. Um, with the door slightly ajar, the sheriff shines the, his flashlight into this dark apartment and he sees a pair of legs on the floor. So at that point, they bust the door open and go inside to find Courtney's lifeless body laying face up on the living room floor. There was blood covering her entire face and her dog was on a leash attached to her body. The leash is wrapped around her waist, making it so the dog is unable to leave her side. The sheriffs continue cautiously walking through the apartment to see if anyone else is there. They walk down the hallway toward the bathroom and find Rob passed out in on the bathroom floor. And they're not sure if he's injured, sleeping, or, you know, blacked out, or if he himself has been a victim at this point. The sheriffs are able to wake rob up and they handcuff him they put him in the back of their police car and he's taken to the station for questioning and it was in the early morning hours on may 24th 2015 that courtney would be pronounced dead at the scene 
So with Rob at the police station, they drew blood. And when the toxicology report came back, it was determined that Rob's blood alcohol level was about three times the legal driving limit of 0.08. The media would almost immediately pick up the story and begin reporting that it appeared Courtney had died from blunt force trauma. A few days after Courtney's death, Rob is again arrested on suspicion of assault against an uh, against another person, which would be Eric. And four months later, Rob would be charged with first-degree murder, that's a 187, um, in connection with Courtney's death, and he would be held on $1.1 million bails and held at Men's Central Jail in Los Angeles in downtown. That jail, by the way, have you ever been? I've only driven by. We'll go for a tour. I'll take mm. you. Um, and the trial date is set for June 2017, uh, nearly two years after Courtney's death. So I received a jury summons in May of 2017, but I requested an extension because I was busy at work at the time. So my instructions at that point were to call into the jury hotline the next month on July 17th. I called in that day and the automated system informed me that I did not need to attend jury duty. And I received instructions to call again the next day. I called in the next day on July 18th and I was informed I needed to report to the San Fernando Superior Courthouse in the morning. I arrived that Tuesday morning and sat in a large room with a bunch of other potential jurors. All of us were given a juror badge with a four-digit number on it. Okay. So 73 of us were actually instructed to report to the fourth floor and sit outside the courtroom and wait for further instructions. I ended up sitting next to an older man, maybe about 55, 60 years old, and during our conversation, he told me he was a homicide detective, and I was, of course, intrigued. How could you not be? Right. At this time, I had no idea what this trial was going to be about, if it was criminal, civil, or whatever. Mm -hmm. The homicide detective said he could tell by the number of potential jurors that this was most likely a homicide case. Oh. So, you know, while the homicide detective and I didn't get to talk for very long and he wasn't able to elaborate on this comment, okay, I assume more people are summoned for homicide trials because the potential jurors will try to get out of it due to the length of the trial, the subject matter, you know, et cetera. Um, and I saw this firsthand at the Arvizu trial. Many, right. many people tried to get out, um, some successful, some unsuccessful. Right, of course. So the court clerk eventually came outside into the hallway and gave us some instructions, told us we would only go by our juror numbers and not our names. The court clerk then escorted all 73 of us into the courtroom. At this time, we saw a woman in a skirt suit standing on the right side of the courtroom and two men on the left side of the courtroom all were standing and facing us as we walked in. It's a little daunting. Yeah, it was. It, was. Yeah. it definitely was. So right away, I knew the, late, the lady on the right-hand side was the prosecutor and that the two men on the left side were the defendant and his attorney. The prosecutor, Julie Kramer, was a Caucasian lady with a thin build, medium-length brown hair. She looked to be in her mid-40s. She wore little to no makeup, but she was attractive. Mm -hmm. Both men on the left side of the courtroom were wearing nice suits, but you could sort of make an assumption as to which one was the defendant. Uh, he, had a, he had a pretty distinct look. Yep. The defendant, who we later learned was Rob Arvizu, stood about six foot two, uh, and he had a very muscular build. He looked to be Hispanic uh, and had tattoos all over his hands and on the back of his head. His head was completely shaved bald, and he had a long gray goatee that had small rubber bands cinching it together from top to bottom. Classy. 
very. <laughs> judge David W. Stewart began to provide some details regarding the case at this point. The judge began reading the charges, which were two assault charges, and then he said something, 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 187. So I knew at that point that this was a murder trial. Mm-hmm. The court clerk said she would read aloud 18 juror numbers, and if your number was called, you had to come through the swinging door and sit down in the juror box. The judge would then ask each juror a set of standard questions, things like, what city do you live in? Are you married? What's your occupation? Do you have children? If they are adult children, what are their occupations? Just a standard set that every every juror is asked. Okay. The prosecutor asked... The prosecutor then asked more specific questions, which gave us clues as to what the case was going to be about. She asked things like, have you or anyone close to you suffered from alcoholism? Uh, are you or anybody close to you uh, the victim uh, of domestic abuse? Things like that. So you okay. could kind of assume that these were subject matters that were going to be a part of this trial. Right. Okay. So then the defendant's uh, attorney, who was a public defender, his name was Edward Mack, he got up and asked some questions of the jurors. And he was a nicely dressed African-American man whose head was completely shaved bald. And Mr. Mack had a pretty colorful personality. He asked us questions like, can you be impartial and come to your verdict based on the evidence and the law and not your emotions, which I think is pretty standard. And it's a good question to ask because, you know, there's gonna be some emotive moments in this. Trial. Oh, definitely. You're, go you're going to have empathy uh, for the victim and that might sway, you know, your yeah. verdict. So then Mac goes on to explain the law pertaining to circumstantial evidence. He says, if two pieces of circumstantial evidence, one points to guilt and the other points to innocence, you have to accept the evidence as pointing toward innocence. So then Mac gave an interesting example of circumstantial evidence. He said, if someone passes gas in an elevator and then gets out, other people walk in, they smell it, they automatically assume you did it. But that doesn't mean you did it. They're just basing their opinion on circumstantial evidence. So that was sort of his way of explaining that things are not always what they seem. Okay. Uh, after two days of jury selection, we finally got to 12 jurors and three alternates were sworn in as well. And I ended up being juror number six. Good number. Um, the opening arguments began July 20th, 2017. So the trial had been delayed by a month. It had been set for June, but it got delayed. And so it's now about two years, two months after Courtney's death. Rob Arvizu was facing two uh, counts of assault for Eric and murder in the first degree for killing his wife, Courtney, the evening of May 23rd, 2015. The prosecutor, Julie Kramer, was claiming that Rob had killed Courtney in cold blood because he was um, jealous, uh, possessive, controlling, and abusive as a husband. The defense attorney was claiming that Rob was in an alcoholic blackout that night, and it's possible that he was not the one who had killed Courtney. He offered up a very thinly veiled, weak conspiracy theory during the trial that none of the jurors bought. During the trial, the defense called Rob's boss to testify, and she had said that Rob used to tell her that Courtney liked kinky sex, and the defense was trying to indicate that Courtney's injuries in Vegas, so going back to the charges he was so angry about, were actually a result of consensual rough sex they had engaged in earlier that evening. 
Um, and if you recall from the beginning of this uh, episode, the detective or the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police men uh, from the altercation in Vegas actually came to testify at the trial. The state had a very strong case against Rob. The timeline fit. Witnesses had seen Rob getting uh, progressively more aggressive with Courtney at the party. The landlord's son had seen Rob and Courtney arguing heatedly at the apartment together, you know, and you have Maria, the neighbor below, hearing the loud thump shortly after they've been seen arguing. So it doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room for some mysterious ninja to come in and uh, kill Courtney while Rob suddenly, you know, calms down and, you know, starts to behave like a, a, a man should towards his wife. Mm -hmm. Evidence uh, would also show that Courtney's blood was found in various places inside the apartment leading from the living room down the hallway and in the bathroom where Rob was found passed out. And it showed that Rob had actually tried to clean up in the bathroom after Courtney's death. There was blood found in the sink drain, shower drain, and on a hand towel. So, um, you know, it kind of shows that he went above and beyond in his, uh, in his attack of his wife. Mm-hmm. Remember the doorman at Mabel's bar who also wouldn't let Rob in? The prosecutor claimed that Rob had killed Courtney, cleaned himself up, and then gone to the bar to try and establish an alibi. Right. So, I mean, Courtney, were almost positive she was already dead by the time Rob showed up at Mabel's bar and tried to get in but was denied. He left her at the apartment. So Rob had driven back home after the doorman wouldn't let him in. And um, there was evidence that showed a lot of dry blood on Rob's hands after he was arrested and brought into the station that very evening. And the doorman would not have noticed that because it was so dark outside. And, you know, the doorman isn't there going to be looking closely at people's hands for blood. He's looking at his demeanor and his behavior and he's stumbling and staggering and you know not making a lot of sense so doorman's like on you go buddy like mm -hmm. you've had one too many get home safe yep um the state that actually was able to call two of rob's ex-girlfriends to the stand to testify and it was really eerie and creepy how much they looked alike they were tall thin they had large breasts long dark brown hair and high cheekbones very attractive women and practically twins of each other. Rob clearly had a type. He absolutely had a type and it, it was it was eerie when you saw Erica um, sitting outside of, she was actually just sitting across from us jurors. We were on a break. We were all outside the courtroom and none of us are allowed to talk to each other. You know, we can talk, but we just can't talk about the trial. But in walks this very attractive woman. She sits down, she has a laptop in front of her so we're all kind of making faces at each other, trying to sort of guess, like, who is this woman going to be? She's obviously part of the trial. We mm -hmm. thought maybe she was an expert witness or something like that. We had no idea that she was going to be one of Rob's ex-girlfriends and testify about things that happened in their relationship. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was interesting. So Erica took the stand and she had dated Rob in 2005 when she was 20 years old. 
Rob was twice her age. So this is now 2017. So it's about, it's over a decade. It's 12 years. It had been a long time since they dated. um, But you're going to see that Rob has been abusive toward women for practically his whole life. Okay. So, you know, she was 20 years old. He was twice her age. This is back in 2005. Erica told the jury that Rob used to constantly accuse her of cheating, which this sounds familiar, right? He would Mm -hmm. do the same thing with Courtney. Mm Mm-hmm. So he would constantly accuse her of cheating on him. He was physically abusive. Erica never reported him to police, which I know, you know, is very common in domestic violence uh, cases. So one night, uh, Erica told a story back in 2005 that she was getting off work. She was a waitress at a local restaurant in Santa Clarita, and Rob was in the parking lot waiting for her. Rob saw a man walking with Erica and became enraged. Rob grabbed Erica in an aggressive manner and pushed her. She almost fell down some steps. Another person who worked at the restaurant saw this happen and called police. Police took a report, but Erica did not press charges against Rob. Mm -hmm. Erica said the man she was walking with was just a coworker who was walking her to her car. Erica also told the jury that Rob would call her in the middle of the night, and if she was breathing heavy, he would accuse her of having sex with another man right at that moment. Not because she's exhausted and waking up and her breathing might be labored from that no no not at all that's not how his mind where he wasn't who answers a phone in the middle of having sex yeah exactly i mean why would she answer especially if she's you know cheating on him right okay makes makes absolutely no sense so erica dated rob for about 18 months but eventually broke up with him because she was afraid of him oh Danette was another ex-girlfriend of Rob's who testified. She also dated Rob when she was younger. Rob was about 10 years older than her. And she said he would constantly accuse her of cheating. And he was also very, very abusive toward her. Danette told the jury about a chilling incident that happened while they were dating. Rob called Danette one morning and he was very angry. Rob yelled at her and told her, quote, you better get the fuck over here now. So Danette told the jury that she was planning on breaking up with Rob around this time and had mentioned to him that the relationship was just too much, referring to the physical abuse. Danette ended up coming over to Rob's apartment like he asked, and he immediately pulled her inside, slammed the door behind her. He dragged Danette into the master bedroom and began yelling at her, and things got physical really fast. She said he slammed her onto the bed, got on top of her, and began choking her. Rob was accusing her of cheating and calling her, quote, a housewife whore. And we've heard that before. Right? Danette said Rob's behavior was erratic. He would get off of her and begin skipping around the room saying, quote, I'm going to do years in prison over this. Danette said the abuse continued for hours with Rob getting angry and physical and then calming down at times. Very erratic. Danette said she went into survival mode and told Rob what he wanted to hear. She told him she wasn't going to break up with him and that she wanted to be with him. She was stroking his leg softly at one point, just trying to get him to calm down. She wanted to get out of there alive. Yeah, you don't confront someone in that situation. She knew it it could escalate very quickly. So she did what she had to do. Rob eventually told Danette, quote, if you love me, then have sex with me right now. Danette didn't want to, but she complied. Rob choked Danette the entire time they were having sex. Oh my gosh. Terrible. So Rob's history of abusing women was well established and documented at trial. And interestingly, another one of Rob's ex-girlfriends testified, but on his behalf, and she was the mother of his two daughters. And I just like to say, you know, he's a father, he has got two daughters. And 
I would bet my bottom dollar that if someone did to his daughters what he did to these women, that he would be like, that's a shitty person. You need to stay away from them and you need to get away from them. Absolutely. I mean, total hypocritical behavior, I'm sure, but. They had um, dated many years prior and, you know, this ex-girlfriend, his the mother of his daughters, claimed that Rob had never shown any kind of abuse or aggression toward her. And the way she answered the questions, um, you said it made you all kind of question her, the veracity of this, whether she was actually being truthful. Um, and you ended up at the same restaurant as her for lunch. I did. And um, yeah, during trial, when she testified, her answers were as short as they could be. Sometimes just one word answers, like the defense attorney would say, um, was Rob ever abusive towards you? Nope. That was her answer. Okay. So it just made us feel like there's some motivating factor for her to testify on his behalf and not really be truthful. We, we didn't quite believe her. Okay. And then we ended up at lunch together one day and this was the actual day that she had, she had just testified like 30 minutes before the lunch break. And I was sitting at the restaurant by myself she comes walking in. No, she's not walking in. She starts, she's skipping. She's skipping in and snapping her fingers and just kind of acting really jolly. Um, it was just strange. I mean, I know I really shouldn't judge, but my take on it was you just got done testifying at a trial where the father of your children could be locked up for the rest of his life. And like, here you are kind of skipping into the restaurant. I don't know. It was just very odd. Yeah. The juxtaposition of that is uh, peculiar. Right. Um, and so she had actually walked in with Rob's aunt, who also testified at trial, and with a man who we saw in the courtroom every single day sitting on Rob's side. Little did we know who this man was. We thought he might be part of the media in the beginning, and seeing him at lunch with Rob's baby mama and Rob's aunt gave you a clue that he was actually connected to Rob in some capacity. So you guys would wonder every single day who this man was, and you started to take these fake bets on who he was. And after, you know, you see the baby mama walking into the restaurant, skipping and dancing, kind of like gleefully moseying around. Do you, do you know who that was? So we found out when the trial was over, we actually got to talk to Julie Kramer, the prosecutor, for about 20, 30 minutes. And she answered a lot of our burning questions. And so, of course, I asked her, who was that large man in the back of the courtroom every day. And she said, that's actually Rob's stepfather. Oh, yes. okay. So um, as we mentioned earlier, the state had a strong case against Rob. The evidence and witness testimony would show that shortly after the landlord's son had left Courtney and Rob's apartment where he had seen them arguing, Rob and Courtney went inside their apartment and this altercation, this deadly altercation ensued. Rob struck Courtney several times in the face and she fell to the ground. Face down on the living room floor, it is believed that she was knocked unconscious by the blows. Rob then got on top of her, applied tremendous pressure to the back of her head, which cut off the airway uh, supply as her face was pushed into the floor. And Courtney's cause of death was not blunt force trauma as the media had previously reported on. She died from actually being smothered to death so from some kind of asphyxiation. That's right. 
A medical expert testified and told jurors that death by smothering is caused when someone's airway is completely cut off so they can no longer breathe. The medical expert went on to say that someone would pass out after about 30 seconds of having their airway restricted and death would occur within three to five minutes, which is sort of a long time. Yeah, that's a tremendously long time. Right, to be applying that much pressure um, to completely cut off somebody's airway to cause death. Well, and in that three to five minutes, you'd think that someone would have the uh, common sense to get off someone. You're absolutely right. And and you'll find out later in the story that, you know, the jurors really talked about that for a long time. And that is really what helped us get to the verdict that we got to was that three to five minutes. Okay. So three to five minutes is a long time to apply extreme pressure on someone. I mean, Rob, it's clear that he wanted Courtney dead. As you'll recall, after the landlord's girlfriend let Courtney into the apartment, she began gathering her things to stay overnight at her mom's house. Courtney had grabbed a Bath and Body Works bag and put a hair clip, a bralette, and some body wash in the bag. These are all just kind of like a quick overnight bag to just get her stuff and go to her mom's house. Yeah. When Courtney fell to the ground after being hit in the face by Rob, she landed face down with her face landing right on top of that Bath and Body Works bag. Oh my gosh, that must have been painful. Absolutely. We knew Courtney died laying face down because a small amount of liver mortis was found on the front of her upper thigh. So liver mortis is something that happens after somebody dies and it's a pooling of the blood. If you die and your body stays in that position for a while, eventually the blood will start to pool at the lowest points of gravity. So if you die laying face down, the blood will pool or liver mortis will occur in places like the front of your stomach, the front of your legs, possibly your nose. Which is where the front of her legs, which is where that was found. That's right. So this is science. So, you know, that's how we know that she actually died laying face down because liver mortis was found on her front upper thigh. But as you'll recall, when the sheriffs knocked down the door, you know, knocked the door open and saw Courtney, she was laying face up when they found her. Okay, so he had moved her. That's right. So when the sheriffs busted the door open and found Courtney's body, she was laying face up and the Bath and Body Works bag was lying right next to her face and there was dry blood all over the outside of the bag. Courtney had been hit several times in the face and the autopsy photo showed a deep cut on her eyebrow and another one below her eye. These cuts are what caused Courtney to have all the blood on her face and it transferred onto the Bath and Body Works bag when her face landed on top of it when she hit the floor. The prosecutor showed a close-up photo of the bag at trial and told the jurors you can almost see an outline of Courtney's face on the bag and this was very chilling. Oh, wow. Courtney had sustained several injuries to her face. Um, Two deeply bruised, swollen eyes, a deep cut on her eyebrow, another cut below her eye, a broken nose, and her jaw appeared to be out of place. Courtney had died laying face down, but when the sheriffs had found her body, she was laying face up. It is believed that after Rob killed Courtney, he cleaned up. Well, we had known that he had tried to clean up because he was found in the bathroom and there was blood in the, you know, uh, sink and the drains and things like that. Um, When Rob had returned home from the bar where he was, you know, Mabel's, where he was uh, not allowed into... He was probably curious to see what he had done to Courtney, so he turned her body over to look at her face, which is why they found her in the position she was in. The bag was laying next to her. The blood was dry, so, you know, it wasn't 
fresh. It had had time to dry while Rob had left the, you know, the premises. Um, And when Rob was arrested, with his blood alcohol level being three times the legal driving limit, it is believed that he had actually consumed several bottles of beer after killing Courtney. There were numerous empty bottles of beer in the bathroom. He had then gotten in his car to drive to the bar to establish an alibi. Um, He gets turned away, comes home, turns Courtney's body over to look at her, and then passes out on the bathroom floor sometime after midnight. And that's when the sheriffs show up to check on Courtney with the welfare check. Right. And as you had mentioned earlier, the defense attorney was trying to say at trial that Rob was was in a drunken blackout and he doesn't remember what happened and and things like that. But we can see that Rob actually was not drunk when he killed Courtney. Um, The landlord's son testified at trial He talked to Rob right before Courtney came out and demanded her keys. He was coherent. He wasn't stumbling. The conversation was flowing well. You also saw a photo of how Rob parked his truck. When he parked his truck in front of their apartment, there's two parking, you know, lines on either side Mm -hmm. of the truck. And he literally did a perfect parking job. So we know that Rob was not drunk before he killed Courtney. He killed Courtney, downed a whole bunch of beers, got in his car, his truck, drove to Mabel's bar, and at that point he was drunk, visibly drunk, and that's why he got turned away. So that defense did not work for us Okay, to say that he was drunk and didn't know what happened. Okay, interesting. So the trial lasted two weeks and one day. We, the jurors, you know, began deliberating on Friday, July 28th, around 1045 in the morning. Prior to deliberations, the judge read the laws and jury instructions to us for about an hour. It's pretty boring, but it's an important part of it. The judge told us to choose a jury foreman and then begin deliberating based on the law, the evidence presented, and witness testimony. Our choices as jurors were voluntary manslaughter, second-degree murder, or first-degree murder, or not guilty. I was chosen as jury foreman. And the jurors began to go through the evidence and deliberating on all three charges. We reached a verdict fairly quickly on the two assault charges first. We got those kind of out of the way, and then we began deliberating on the murder charge. By the end of the day on Friday, we were close to reaching a verdict on the murder charge, but needed more time and didn't want to rush it. We took the weekend, came back Monday morning. By late Monday morning, we delivered a message to the judge that a verdict had been reached on all three charges. A few minutes later, we were escorted into the courtroom and asked to sit down in the jury box. I handed the verdicts over to the bailiff, who then handed them over to the judge. The judge read the verdicts to himself and then handed the verdicts to the county clerk to read aloud. I was relieved that I, as the jury foreman, did not have to read the verdicts aloud in court. Oh, that, yeah, you wouldn't want to be, have that weight hanging over you. I really didn't. So I was pretty relieved and I didn't know until that moment that I was not going to have to do that. So that was a little bit of stress off my shoulders. The county clerk read the verdicts aloud, guilty on two counts of assault and guilty of murder in the first degree. When the verdict was read aloud, no reaction from Rob. I think he saw it coming. Mm Mm-hmm. The judge asked the defense attorney if he wanted to pull the jury, and he said yes. So the judge asked each and every juror individually if they agreed with the verdict, and all answered yes. This was a very tense moment because Rob was looking at each juror in the eyes as they answered the judge's questions. Courtney's mom was noticeably absent when the verdicts were read. We would find out later the reason she did not attend court that day. 
The jury was dismissed, and I happened to get into the elevator with Julie Kramer, the prosecutor. We spent about 15 minutes with her, and she answered a lot of our questions and gave additional info that actually did not come out in trial. She told us who the mystery man was sitting on Rob's side of the courtroom, which we mentioned earlier. This was actually Rob's stepfather. Interestingly enough, his stepfather actually gained custody of Rob's two daughters years ago and was raising them in Alaska. Oh. So... Think about the interesting dynamic. I mean, you don't know what Rob's family situation is and you don't know what the mother of his children's, you know, family dynamic is, but it's, it's fairly rare. I think we, it's safe to say that if two people lose custody of their children. And it goes to a stepfather. Yes. Very interesting. So I, you know, the curiosity, the curiosity in me wants to know more, um, but we really didn't get to dive in, you know, too deep, but that tells you there were issues with Rob and, and quote unquote, baby mama. And I would find out later that they were both on drugs. I think that's why the children got taken away from them and uh, had been living with his stepfather for years. Why did the stepfather uh, come to court every day? So we asked that question of Julie Kramer and she said he needed to know for himself and for Rob's daughters if Rob was guilty. And he wanted to be there every single day to hear every single piece of evidence and fact so that if it turns out that Rob did actually do this, that he could tell the daughters. Definitively. Definitively. This is what happened. I heard all the evidence. I heard all the facts. And that's why he did. Okay. He was there every day. So Ms. Kramer told us that Rob was scheduled to be sentenced in a couple of weeks on August 15th, but I was unable to attend the sentencing hearing. During sentencing, members of Courtney and Rob's family and some friends gave statements. Eric, Rob's best friend, the man he assaulted that night, said, quote, I know Rob. I know the best parts of him. And unfortunately, I know the worst parts of him. His anger brought out the worst in him. The anger is still in him, and I don't think it'll ever go away. In addressing the judge, Eric said, quote, make sure he can't hurt anybody ever again. So during the sentencing hearing, it's such a shame because Rob never apologized to Courtney's family and friends during the sentencing hearing. He took no accountability for what he did to her. He was still claiming that he didn't remember what happened, which his attorney claimed was due to Rob being in an alcoholic blackout. But we know from the evidence that that was not the case. So um, I'm sure that was just such a gut punch for Courtney's family to be there that day and to have him taking no accountability, not apologizing. And this is really what you would call a pretty slam dunk case against him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what was he sentenced to? So he was actually sentenced to 28 years to life. And the judge um, came up with a sentence. The jury had no, nothing to do with the sentence. So, and we always knew that this was not going to be a capital murder case, but the judge told the jury in the beginning, do not worry about the sentence, just worry about coming up with a verdict. And so the judge sentenced him to 28 years to life. Okay. Um, when this was going on, did you find, you know, I think it's one thing to enjoy and have a fascination with true crime. And it's another thing to be so involved. Did you, this weigh on you in any capacity? It weighed on me very heavily, more than I even thought. Of course, when I found out that it was going to be a homicide trial, I was intrigued because I, I want to learn and I've always wanted to be inside the courtroom to see this process through. Um, but I will say when you've got the family members of the victim, you've got yeah. the defendant in this small little courtroom looking at you. Um, so that's kind of freaky, but mostly where I was sitting as a juror, I was sitting closest to 
the victim's family. And okay. I felt Courtney's mom's grief and her sister's grief. And so that weighs on you. And then when it got closer to, you know, the trials concluded and now we have to come up with a verdict and we're taking somebody's life into to our hands, so to speak. But we also want to give justice, you know, to the family and to Courtney. I was losing a lot of sleep. Um, I was becoming emotional. And, you know, I ran into Courtney's family a couple of times in the bathroom. And that was very hard because all I wanted to do was reach out and give them a hug. I mean, they were devastated. Um, but you can't do that. You know, you have to just be at an arm's length, you know, away, mm -hmm. you know, as a juror. So, yeah, it was absolutely a very, very difficult thing to go through. And did Rob, you know, kind of creep you out in any capacity? He definitely creeped me out. Um, he has these small kind of beady eyes. Uh, he has small teeth and just an eerie look to him. And I know those things maybe don't sound like much, but when you're sitting in this courtroom and he looks at you with those eyes and there were times when he would smile and it just, when I would go to bed at night, I would have sort of like flashes of Rob's face. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it definitely creeps you out and you wonder, you know, does he know who I am now? Cause he's looking at me. I live in the same community as him. You know, if he goes to prison and I'm the one who helped put him there, is his family going to lash out? Are they going to find out who I am? And so all these things race through your mind. So yeah, I found him to be very creepy um, and just being a juror who's responsible for putting him in prison for a long time is... I'd love to know about Courtney's tattoo, the chest tattoo. Yeah, so the reason I mention that is because it's so strange because we sort of got to know Courtney through the trial and just sort of looking at her Facebook afterward. The tattoo on her chest did not match. I could see her having a few tattoos in her arms. A lot of girls in Santa Clarita do. It's kind of big, you know, in that area. Yeah. But the tattoo on her chest seemed very dark, very big, very bold. And it and it and I think it crept up onto her neck. And you just didn't picture. It seemed off that she had this tattoo in her chest. Well, we would find out later that she got that tattoo after she met Rob because Rob was a tattoo artist and he told her, you need a big chest tattoo. You need it to be this. You need it to be that. All of her tattoos on her arms were all kind of like very feminine and very kind of joyful and positive. Mm -hmm. And then he, the tattoo that he sort of coaxed her into getting was very dark and it fit his personality. So he was kind of like putting his mark Branding on her, her with that tattoo. And her family really was, I don't want to know if I should use the word devastated, but they were not happy to see that tattoo on her. And they absolutely said it did not fit Courtney. That was Rob's doing. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, it was. So it's been a little over a year since the trial. Um, and I know I myself, interestingly enough, when you uh, and I first started talking about this case, I actually learned that Rob is in High Desert State Prison. And High Desert is known as one of the most severe maximum prisons in uh, California. Mm -hmm. It's way out in the mountains, about three hours east of Sacramento. And I've talked to guys who've been in Corcoran and they'll be like, oh man, if you really screw up in here, you get sent to high desert. So it's, you know, you can tell that he, I don't know if, if I don't know if, um, after his sentencing, when he went to reception, uh, probably at Delano or Wasco, 
if that's just where he ended up because of the point system or if there was any kind of altercation or um, something further that happened that got him sent there. But it is, it's a very isolated prison. It's very difficult to get to. And I mean, they have some very, very violent individuals there. Well, and he definitely fits the bill. I mean, yeah. his it's his behavior uh, for years showed him to be a very dangerous, a very violent uh, person. So um, that's probably right where he needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I do Agreed. wonder, yeah, I wonder, you know, it seems like he had a strained family life of sorts. So I wonder if he gets visitors and things like that. And and I've actually come across people, Santa Clarita is a large valley, but I think like we said earlier, it's sort of the place where kind of everybody's connected in one way or another. Right. So I knew it was only a matter of time that I would run into people that knew Rob. So earlier this year, I went into a local silk screen shop, which is actually in the same parking lot as Mabel's Bar. And I walked in and I was going to get some murderish t-shirts, you know, done. Did you nip in and get a quick drink at Mabel's? You know, I absolutely did not. I did not this time. (laughs) I think I've learned my lesson. (laughs) I can never walk in there again after being on this trial. It's like, oh my God, stay away from Mabel's. Um, So I walked into the silkscreen shop and the owner was a really nice lady. And of course she's curious. She's like, well, what's murderish? And I told her it's a podcast. And she's like, well, what do you talk about on there? So we got to talking and I brought up Rob's case. And she says, um, no, before I brought up Rob's case, she goes, oh, she goes, I used to have a murderer that worked here. And I go, really? Who is that? And she says, a guy named Rob Arvizu. Do you know him? And I go, oh my gosh, that's one of the stories I covered on the podcast, you know? Yeah. Um, I was a juror. And so we started talking about it. She told me that he was a fairly talented, you know, uh, artist and he was pretty good. You know, he worked for her for a while. She trusted him. But then his behavior changed and she doesn't know if that had to do with, she thought it might've been steroids, uh, maybe other drugs as well, because he got big pretty fast. Um, But he just became very angry with her, so angry that she had to fire him one day. And as he's leaving, he's like cursing at her, yelling at her as he leaves the door. So this is very true to Rob's behavior, you know, in the past. And she ended up firing him because he was just volatile. Okay. So that was interesting. Um, Something very creepy happened. And I don't know if you'll agree, but this still sort of creeps me out to this day. Um, My husband and I own a business in Santa Clarita and we were in our office one day. I went to check the mail and immediately I saw a magazine and it was some sort of tattoo magazine. And for some reason, my mind immediately went to Rob just because I don't know why. I just I just thought of him because he's a tattoo artist and that's where my mind went. So I turned the magazine over just to kind of see, I knew it wasn't addressed to us because our business has nothing to do with art or tattoos or anything like that. And so turned it over and it's addressed to Rob Arvizu. No. Yes, it is. So I'm going, hold on. Why am I a juror on his case? Why am I getting Rob Arvizu's mail? This is very creepy, very coincidental. So then I think, you know, we just bought this warehouse, um, you know, sometime last year. Maybe the previous owner employed Rob. And he used to get mail there. So I called the previous owner and I just said, I have a really strange question question to ask you. I just need to know, do you know Rob Arvizu? Did he ever work for you? Yeah. And the guy immediately shot back and was like, nope, don't know him. Never heard of him. So did you feel like that he answered a little too quickly? I felt like he answered a little too quickly and that could just be me, you know, jumping to conclusions. But sure. anyway, I mean, how strange is it that the jury foreman is getting the defendant's 
male. You know, it just, it was, yeah. it threw me off. It threw me off for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, that would definitely throw me off. Yeah. Oh gosh. Get yourself a PO box girl like <laughs> I me. I need to. Why haven't I done that already? Is there anything else that really kind of comes to mind? Or? No, just, um, you know, I keep every now and then I come across people in the Santa Clarita Valley who knew him. A couple of people described him as a big teddy bear, very sweet, very charismatic. I do think those parts are true about Rob. And I think that's sure. how he was able to land, you know, relationships with these women. It sounds like he was very uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Absolutely. So he's got the good side, you know, and it draws them in. Um, but then he's obviously got the very dark side. Um, you know, I want to, you know, kind of take it back, make it serious again, just for a moment, because, you know, I believe it's actually the first two weeks after a woman uh, leaves an abusive relationship that she's most likely to become a, a victim of homicide or a domestic homicide. And, um, you know, I want to just kind of reiterate that if people, any of our listeners, if you are in an abusive relationship, there are, uh, you know, programs, organizations, there's support for you out there. You don't have to stay in that relationship. Um, one of our first uh, podcast episodes with Wendy Walsh, and she provides a lot of guidance for you if you are a friend of someone who's going through domestic violence, how you can support them, how you can protect them, um, how you can nurture them through this. And, you know, like my hope is to never have to do cases like these again. Right. You know, and it just unfortunately happens far too often. And, um, you know, if you're going through this right now, know that you are not alone and don't mm -hmm. feel ashamed. Um, but, but if you're going to get out, I've learned, you know, from people like, um, Laura Richards yeah. as well, you know, that just you've, there's ways to sort of get out safely. Yeah. And going back to the difference between Rob's ex-girlfriends and Courtney, you know, Rob's ex-girlfriends seem to be very mild-mannered. And the one, you know, Danette, she did what she had to do to save her own life. And I do believe that she submitted to Rob that day, gave him what he wanted because she was in survival mode. And I truly think that she saved her own life that day. The difference between her and Courtney, though, is that Courtney was sassy and definitely wasn't going to put up with Rob's crap. And I think that that just only further angered Rob and not that that has anything to do with blaming Courtney. I'm the same way. Yeah. Um, but I think that he just couldn't handle it, that somebody was coming back at him. And then, you know, most of the women in his past, I think, had submitted to him. Right. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, please call the domestic abuse hotline at 1-800-799-7233. And if you are in the Los Angeles or Santa Clarita area, I was recently appointed to the Committee of CATS, the Center um, for Abuse Treatment Services, and it's the only 24-hour, uh, 365-day-a-year program in the LA Santa Clarita area that is um, dedicated to helping uh, victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, rape, and human trafficking. And I will will have all this information on all our social media. Awesome. That's a very worthwhile organization. Yes. We're doing a 5K next year. Are you going to join us? Well, I mean, duh. If you're asking me uh, in front of 
however many people are listening, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> so yeah, come on out, mate, start a team cool. and we'll have these resources. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in and listening to The Pros and Cons Presents Murderish Southern California. Thanks so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Very fun. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.